When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. All right, we're back. It's another Carolina podcast. Quarantine episode number seven. Quarantine started to get a little bit long. I was kind of used to it. Felt like we had plateaued there for a little bit. Uh, Now that we're in the seventh week, it's a little bit long. But still no shortage of news as South Carolina has made official the hiring of a new running back coach. Talk about that. Obviously, the NFL draft was this past weekend, and four Gamecocks heard their names called and several more signing undrafted free agents after the draft. And Chris Clark has some insights about the potential future of the college football season, like just a real big-picture look at what it could be, when it could be, all those things that we don't have answers to. Chris has some insights on, on all of those things. So a bigger discussion to be had there. So we'll start today with the breaking news, or I guess the closest thing to breaking news, but as of Friday morning, uh, Des Kitchings has been officially named the running back coach for South Carolina. Not a huge surprise. South Carolina had interviewed him a little bit earlier in the offseason when it seemed like Brian McClendon was going to leave for Pittsburgh. Seemed like an easy hire. It came together pretty quickly for South Carolina. Uh, Wes, I'll let you get started with uh, Des Kitchings. Uh, can you walk us through just what the process was in, in hiring him beyond, uh, obviously, the interview earlier in the offseason? Yeah, it was like you said, it was a pretty, pretty quick deal. I, I think everybody sort of knew, um, you know, when McClendon – did decide to leave that that was probably the, the direction that Will Muschamp was going to go. Uh, you know, even after it was interesting, even after the initial situation where BMAC did not leave for the Steelers job, wasn't offered the Steelers job. Um, you know, we actually saw Des Kitchings was at a South Carolina practice, checking things out, um, you know, during the spring, just hanging out with the staff, which, you know, I, I think, obviously isn't that unheard of for, for other college coaches, especially if there's a prior relationship, um, you know, to go hang around and watch practice and sort of tour the facilities and stuff like that. But I think certainly considering that he was interviewed and considering that there was a chance of an opening down the road, it was kind of interesting that, that he made it back over to campus and was hanging around the guys and, you know, even just sort of probably evaluating what South Carolina had a little bit talent wise. So, so I think the relationship maybe sort of continued there. And then, um, you know, at, when there was this new opening, I, I believe Muschamp reached out, you know, relatively quickly and, and touched base with, um, you know, with Dez and sort of got the ball rolling. And, and then, um, you know, I, I think even with it being official this past Friday, it was, it was unofficial, I would say, a, a good bit before that, probably almost a week before that. So I, I think this thing – behind the scenes and unofficially moved very, very quickly. Um, of course, officially, I, I think there were some things to work through 
uh, as far as, um, you know, we're in uncertain times, especially financially. So I'm sure South Carolina wanted to make sure they handled everything correctly. But, um, yeah, I think this was kind of a no-brainer. It's made sense for a long time and made sense the first time. And uh, now it's, it's finally official, and, and Des Kitchens is at South Carolina, which is a place that I think he wants to be, being that he's from the state and uh, his, his parents still live right down the road in the Wagner-Sally area. And um, I think it's a good fit. We kind of went over his credentials last week, why he's qualified, why he seems like he'll be a good fit, as you just mentioned, for uh, for South Carolina West being a South Carolina native. Uh, but, Chris, this has been such an interesting offseason for South Carolina because there's been an unbelievable amount of coaching turnover. And every time they go out and make a hire, whether it's going from Brian McClendon to Mike Bobo, it's like, okay, well, after a 4-8 and eight season, it's pretty impressive if you manage to – have an ostensible upgrade at that position, and not even necessarily the Des Kitchings is an upgrade over Thomas Brown because jury's still out on that one, but a guy with a good track record, with a proven track record, he's a good recruiter, and we can talk about his recruiting impact in a minute, but are, are we overstating the hires that, that Carolina keeps making, or is it is it actually the case that they keep improving the staff when it seems like that shouldn't be the case, given the amount of roster turnover, given how late in, in the season it is for, for you to be making coaching changes? Like, shouldn't these all just be guys off the scrap heap? Why does it feel like these are all good good gifts for Carolina? I mean, it's a really good point. And, and look, some, some people get upset with us if we say, like, anything positive. You know, until, hey, until, until they turn around on the field, don't say anything good. But it, I understand that, and, and they've got a lot of work to do in terms of program and just improving this season. They've got to do those things. Nobody's denying that. Nobody's denying that for all the good things, whether it's player development or draft record or individual players, improvements they made in recruiting, how they've sort of risen from year after year on that front. Nobody's denying that the on-field results have to match, okay? But but here here is the reality of it. After going 4-8 and eight, and after being very publicly placed on the hot seat and after a season in which there was a lot of turmoil in the offseason, whether it was – you know, the hot seat stuff with Caslin, whether it was going four and eight, whether it's the fan unrest and having some coaches leaving in some situations looking to leave for various reasons, one of those being a perceived and very real instability. It's almost nonsensical how South Carolina was able to sign probably its best recruiting class from top to bottom under Muschamp, arguably, with two five star prospects and didn't have a single decommitment from that class that was related to the season. Um, that really doesn't even make sense, and, and it was a huge accomplishment. And then, you know, anytime you lose coaches, particularly under this circumstance, you look at it and say, you know, can you can you get a coach that's of the same caliber or can you upgrade? And so with Mike Bobo, you're getting a guy who has a really good track record. You know, you, you look at – and I, I know some people looked at it and say, okay, Georgia or – you know, Georgia had some really good offenses, and so did Colorado State. Um, if you could be three quarters as good as those teams were offensively, then you're you're going to be upgrading. You know, and, I, and look, talent's a huge component of that. So I don't know, but you're getting a guy who has a track record. Thomas Brown was a super recruiter. He was ticketed for an NFL job for quite a while. He's been rising in the industry. But when you look at Des Kitchens, you get a guy who has ties to the Carolinas. He's a South Carolina native. He's recruited to a school like NC State. He's had success at some programs that, you know, aren't logo schools, for example, whether it's recruiting or development. So that's a really good get. You get Rod Wilson, who's a former Gamecock, and he's 
a guy who just won a Super Bowl and has special teams experience and played linebacker in the NFL and at South Carolina. So when you look at all those things and you look at the recruiting class, I really think you came out under the circumstances about as well as you could from the offseason. That's a huge thing. Now they have to take that and try to continue to to improve on the field, to have a better season and see if they can build from there. But but those things are certainly positive to have a chance, I would say, to turn it around in the short and the long term. Well, and I'm glad you, you feel similarly in, in a similar way that I do because, again, I, I find myself sitting here thinking exactly what you're saying. Like, wow, like these guys have good credentials. These all seem like good hires. That shouldn't necessarily be the case. Can both of these things be true, that Carolina maybe shouldn't have gotten these guys but but did? I think the answer is yes, and you're also right that – they have to go out on the field and prove it. And if Carolina goes 4-8 and eight again next year, it won't matter what those guys' credentials are. None of them are going to be back at South Carolina. Well, probably none of them will be back at South Carolina, um, and the fans will still be unhappy, and you know nothing will have changed. But uh, at this point, if you're, if you're looking for any signs of encouragement, I mean, uh, they're all right there. Uh, you mentioned the recruiting impact of Thomas Brown, and uh, you know I don't know if Des Kitchings is as good a recruiter, a better recruiter, a worse recruiter. I don't follow that stuff as closely as y'all do. Y'all know the ins and outs of it a lot better. Uh, so Wes and and look, it might not even matter. As I mentioned, you know, if Carolina goes four and eight again, if they go five and seven, even if they go six and six, there's a good chance that none of these coaches are even back. So Des Kitchings' recruiting prowess may not even end up mattering in South Carolina. But let's say they go seven and five, or eight and four, or nine and three, or do something crazy this season, and everyone keeps their job. Talk about Des. Ki- oh, I, I can't do talk about. Sorry, I hate talk about questions. What kind of recruiter is uh, Des Kitchings relative to Thomas Brown? Um, you know, I, I think um, you look at Thomas Brown, and it, it's always going to be difficult to replace a guy like that at, at your running back position. I, I mean, uh, man, th- this guy was, I think, largely considered one of your probably top five running back coaches in the country, and there was a reason that the, you know, that the Rams wanted him, and and obviously that doesn't even include the recruiting part. But I, I think as far as you you look at what Des Kitchings has done in his eight years at NC State, uh, you look at the fact that. Um, a large portion of that, he was the recruiting coordinator as well. And, you know, you look at some of those teams that NC State uh, was able to build where they just had NFL guy after NFL guy. Um, you know, not only was Des Kitchens a primary recruiter on several of those guys, but um, he was a recruiting coordinator who helped put together, you know, the plan to, to go get those guys. So I think what you're getting, um, maybe not quite the – the big name nationally that, that Thomas Brown had sort of quickly become, at least as far as running backs coaches go. But, um, you know, I, I think as far as South Carolina and the fit and uh, the ties, I think the big thing with Des Kitchings is that he is extremely well-respected um, in the Carolinas. He has long-standing ties in the Carolinas. And, uh, you know, he's going to have territories both in South Carolina and North Carolina uh, for the Gamecocks and, I would imagine he'll have a big territory in Raleigh where he did a lot of work, uh, you know, when he was in NC State. So, uh, I mean, I, I did a list on, on Gamecock Central um, the day that the hire got made official of, of some of the big names that he had landed. The fact that his running back room has consistently featured talented backs, which I think is a another, you know, good sign of a strong recruiter is you got to take care of your, your business. you got to take care of your own position group. And I, I think that's something that he's done – throughout his career. So uh, I, I think for, for all those reasons, this is a great hire for South Carolina. It's a great fit. And, you know, I, I think this is one of those things and, um, you know, where you're going to see 
it's starting to pay off. It, it'll it'll help long-term for sure, but I, I think it can pay off actually in the short term as well where you're going to see South Carolina maybe be able to make a run at a few guys, particularly in North Carolina, that maybe otherwise um, wasn't necessarily the case. So in your opinion, when you look at his running back room, like getting Zach Stacy, getting Naheem Hines, you know, guys that he coached at Vanderbilt and NC State respectively, those were considered good recruiting gets as opposed to him getting – sort of a mid-level talent, like a, a normal Vanderbilt or NC State guy, and then just maximizing it? Yeah, well, I mean, Naheem Hines was a uh, a four-star recruit with uh, offers from all over. Um, I don't remember if he's a low four-star or a mid-four-star or where he was in the, um, you know, in the tiers. But, uh, but Naheem Hines, I mean, I remember watching him, uh, watching his recruitment, and, uh, you know, this guy was a big-time prospect that a lot of people wanted, and, you know, you look at his running back room, I, I would say it's been a combination. Um, you know, there were several guys, actually, that if you look back over the list of guys that uh, Dez has landed, I, I think there were a few three-star guys that ended up outplaying um, the kids who were actually the bigger recruiting wins, um, you know, during during his time at NC State. So I, I think the big thing is, man, you just look, he's consistent. The fact that they had three straight 1,000-yard rushers is um, is a nice stat, but it's even – I think it says even more when you look at the fact that there were three different guys rushing for 1,000 yards uh, during that, that three-season stretch. So but that means that you're, you've built depth, you've recruited to replace guys, you know, to where somebody can step in and, and be ready. And, um, you know, I, I, think, I think he actually walks into – even though they lost all those seniors, he walks into a really talented running back room already. But you go ahead and you look at the class of 2021 and what's out there and what Carolina's in on, I think he's got a chance to continue to to add to that in this class. Well, yeah, and I was about to say, I mean, even with all those guys, uh, Chris, is it fair to say Marshawn Lloyd's the most talented guy he's ever coached or will have ever coached? Yeah, probably so, man. I mean, Wes, I think I think Naheem Hines was I think a five nine four star. I don't have it in front of me, but that that would typically put him in the top. I don't know anywhere from the top sixty to you know one hundred and fifty something like that. So he's probably in that range. But he was you know five nine four star, which is sort of that mid four star range. Really talented player. But yeah, Lloyd, I mean, is going to be, I think without looking it up off the top of my head, but just sort of running through the guys he's coached, that's going to be the highest ranked and probably the most talented, just raw talented, you know, guy that he's ever coached. So certainly it's a, it's a positive to, you know, to be able to walk in that situation. Um, you know, get, if you get Quandre white on campus, that's another guy who's, you know, former four-star guy out of high school in Florida who went to Florida state, a four-star junior college guy. And then you try to continue stacking some talent on top of that. Mm-hmm. Certainly a positive situation for everyone. Guys, uh, I, I actually just pulled my, my list I was working off of. Um, I mean, their leading rusher this past year was a kid by the name of Zonovan Knight. Um, he was a kid from North Carolina. He was a four-star, a lower four-star guy. Um, Jordan Houston was a high three-star guy. That was their two signings from 2019. You look back at 2018, um, he signed Ricky Person, who was the number four all-purpose back in the country. He's a 5.9 four-star, which is the middle-tier four-star. Um, you actually look back at 2015, and um, Kitching signed Naheem Hines, who was a 5.9 four-star, as you said. He was the number two all-purpose back in the country. 
He signed Reggie Gillespie, who was the, the next guy on that list of 1,000-yard rushers. He was a four-star from Greensboro. And he signed, uh, Chris, you remember this name, Johnny Frazier? Um, oh, yeah, Johnny guy. Frazier. Johnny Frazier at the time was a was a stud recruit. And I, I, don't, I don't really know what happened at, at NC State. But um, and t- so basically in 2015, uh, he signed three – different four-star running backs. And then to top it all off, signed Emmanuel McGirt, who was a four-star offensive lineman from Durham uh, that was in Kitchings territory. So his 2015 class is really probably the uh, the big example of, of what he's kind of capable of on the recruiting trail. Hmm. And in 2014, Wes, I mean, you know, not a running back, but Kentavious Street, who was a, a high four-star, a top 50 recruit who's in the NFL now, you know, what um, was another guy that he signed out a huge offer list and was a big in-state win. So, you know, another significant get there for NC State. Yeah, and I think, um, Pearson, the, the thing Chris and I have talked about a, a bunch, and I think that uh, probably doesn't get talked about enough, uh, I think we maybe mentioned it on the podcast, though, is it's one thing to go land guys at a name program. And, and one thing we're finding is that sometimes – these guys that recruit to a logo and it, it it goes it goes much further than just looking at a list and saying, you know, this guy was at LSU and signed before stars each year without knowing the actual story of, of their recruiting processes. So I think you're seeing or we've seen at South Carolina, sometimes big name coaches get here and they're able to replicate it and sometimes they're not. I think the thing you like about Des Kitchings as far as the fit, which is a word I keep using, is that he's been able to sign guys out of the state of North Carolina to NC State, which is not um, certainly not a logo school nationally, probably even in the southeast. And even in their own state, you know, UNC, even though they're, they're not like a football school, obviously, UNC is like the cooler logo as far as the one that the kids really want to get an offer from. So I think when, you're, when you talk about a fit, you're talking about, who can come to South Carolina and land players? And I, I think um, with Kitchings, what he's done at NC State and being able to land players and fight off some bigger-name schools from coming into their state and, and getting it done, I think uh, sort of gives, to me, gives the idea that uh, this guy's probably going to be able to sign players at South Carolina. So all that to say, Still a good hire, a very good hire on paper for South Carolina, even if it doesn't necessarily make any sense, as we talked about a little bit earlier. Like there's, there's no other way to look at those credentials other than this is a good guy for South Carolina, especially given the context, especially given his recruiting relationships and things like that. And uh, who knows? You know, if South Carolina is able to turn things around this year, sounds like he might be the kind of guy that could help Marshawn Lloyd uh, be a part of uh, the group of Gamecocks that heard their names called in the NFL draft. Just this past weekend, uh, four of them, in fact, plus another five that have signed undrafted free agent deals. And a little bit surprising that Joseph Charlton was neither drafted and has also not yet signed an undrafted free agent deal as of last check. Wes, Chris, am I uh, I wrong on that? Has has that changed in the last couple days? Or is Joe Charlton still unsigned? I believe he's still unsigned as far as I've seen. All right. Well, I expect that to change. I'm pretty sure he'll be on a team uh, at some point. During the 
at least during the preseason. I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and say he's for sure going to make a roster, but he will definitely get a crack at it. But point is, uh, nine Gamecocks from last year's team are at least going to get a shot to be on an NFL team. And we can just kind of go through in order. Obviously, no surprise. The first guy that heard his name called was Javon Kinlaw. He was a consensus, like, top 12 pick, essentially, top 15 pick. I know he went 14, so I can't say consensus top 12, and then he goes 14. But he was a for sure first rounder. He was the second I mean, pretty much consensus uh, number two defensive tackle, according to a lot of people, including Will Helms, who had great breakdowns pre-draft, uh, all you know, leading up to it for every single position group. Goes to the 49ers, a fantastic situation for him, in my opinion. Obviously, they were just in the Super Bowl. I really like when good players are able to go to good teams and they don't have to just go and suck somewhere for several years. Um, Chris, Javon Kinlaw to the Niners. Is that maybe even the best possible fit for him of, of every team he could have gone to? Probably so. I mean, for a few reasons. I mean, number one, you look at this is a team that made the Super Bowl last year, and unless I'm mistaken, they didn't have some sort of mass exodus in the off season, you know, or anything of that nature. Um, and so they they've got one of the NFL's bright young co- coaches and Kyle Shanahan. They have a good base of talent, you know, offensively, defensively. They were very good there last year, and just came off a Super Bowl appearance. So you know. It's hard to make it there twice in a row, but it's not a team you look at and say, yeah, they'll probably, you know, win four games next year. They they look like they're built to last. And so you got that, but also you got the fact that Ken Law can go in and, and play early there on a defensive line that's really good. They lost to Forrest Buckner in the offseason, so you can draft Ken Law to come in and play. He'll actually be playing alongside or with Kentavious Street, who I mentioned earlier from NC State's actually on that roster as a defensive lineman too. And they got a good bit of talent there up front. And so, you know, when you look at all those different things, you know, ability to play with other good players at your position group, that's a check. The ability to play early, that's a check, which Kinlaw can do that almost anywhere because he's he's potentially that good, he's that talented. And that's a checkbox. And then as well, the opportunity to go to a, a well-coached, good team, good organization. It looks like that's that's another checkbox. So really good, uh, really good deal for Javon in terms of where he went. Wes, I'll start you with this, and then I'm sure we'll go back and forth because this is going to be controversial, and I feel like one or both of you have already pushed back on, on me when I have said this in the past. And I'm not saying he's better, not saying he's a better college player, not saying he's going to be a better NFL player, but in terms of upside, in terms of potential, based on the defense that he is you know, now a part of, based on the position that he plays, and the fact that he's an absolute freak of nature, is it possible that Javon Kinlaw ends up being the best Gamecock ever to play in the NFL? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, is, it, is it possible? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Is it is it probable? I would say pro- – I mean, see, you know, you're making me go negative. I, I would say probably not. I mean – Well, no, I mean, you don't have to be negative. Cool. You, you can you can rebut that by saying, but look how many great Gamecocks there have been in the NFL if you want to take that angle. But I just – I'm enamored with his upside and that he is going to San Francisco, which is, you know, as Chris mentioned, somewhere where he can go. And, I mean, look, Javon Kinlaw was getting double and triple teamed all the time in college and still was able to be incredible. And his two best games maybe of his entire career were the Georgia and Alabama games this past year. And of the 10 offensive linemen that he saw in the Georgia and Alabama games, how many of them are going to be starting NFL offensive linemen? Eight? Seven? Nine? All 10? 
getting double and triple teamed. He's not going to face that in San Francisco. He's going to have a lot of one-on-ones. He's already on a good team with great pieces all over that defense. And the defensive tackle is maybe the most, like the single most valuable position defensively in the NFL right now just because of how the game is played. That dude has an and, – and look, everyone says, you know, Jadavian Clowney. But my counterpoint to that is Jadavian Clowney, who played defensive end his entire life, immediately went to a team that plays 3-4, had to play outside linebacker, and yeah, he put his hand in the dirt a lot, but was still a 3-4 outside linebacker. He's rushing the passer either way, but he wasn't where he was most comfortable. And you saw what happened when he went to Seattle for you know just a year last year. And I don't want to say transformed, but seemed to be rejuvenated playing in a more – traditional defense. So I feel like landing spot is is huge, not to mention Clowney had some injuries and things like that in the early part of his career uh, that limited the amount of games that he could play. But I, I really feel like this is the perfect scenario for Kinlaw. And and I just, I'm so, I'm, I'm obsessed with his upside. I, I think it is just about infinite. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I give you all those points. I just, I just think, um, I mean, if, if you're right, that's going to be a good call on your part because you know, the, the chances of him being the best South Carolina, and I'm trying to think of who would even be in that conversation. I mean, let's just go right now. Currently, I mean, a former Stephon. Gamecock is the is the defensive player yeah. of the year. So, uh, I mean, um, you know, and, and was an all-pro and, you know, was a, an absolute, you know, has, has sort of been that guy that's gone from being a good player, great player, whatever, to being like, a known just phenom and, uh, you know, somebody that everybody knows who he is. So um, is Javon going to be able to hit that threshold? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, man. That, that's a tough uh, hill to climb. And I think the the scary part about Javon, though, to your point, is that we, we don't know how good this guy could be. Now, potential is also a dangerous word because that, that means you're not there yet. That means, um, you know, he's going to have to go out and, and get to that point. But uh, – but yeah, it, it'll be fun. Now, I, I can't disagree at all with what you're saying about that fit and where you land. I mean, to me, that's that's probably more important than the overall talent, in, in my opinion, is just getting to a place where, um, for one, this is an organization that actually wants to win right now, which you would think all of them want to win, but they but they obviously don't. And depending on the window of time, you're either in a rebuild mode or a win-now mode. And the 49ers are one of the handful of teams that sent, you know, believes they're firmly in their win right now window. So to get on a team, uh, you know, to still be a first round pick and to have that going your way, but not have to go like, you know, top seven or something to where you're probably in a rebuild situation really works out well for him. Chris, do you have a yeah, pick I mean, off the top of your head for best Gamecock ever in the NFL? That's what I was trying to think of. I mean, I was gonna. The point I was gonna make um, is that it's already sort of a high bar to clear. And and like Wes said, to his point, even even if you go recent, I mean, you talk about Stephon Gilmore, who's got a Super Bowl ring, was himself a former first round draft pick, a South Carolina native, um, a guy who's the defensive player of the year. You think about Jonathan Joseph, who's maybe done it more quietly, but he's played. I mean, how many years in the league? Double digit years in the league and has been a very good player and has made a lot of money for himself. I mean, people don't think of him as much as, say, a Gilmore for various reasons. Um, you know, I think you go back – I mean, Sterling Sharp, I mean, look, his career got cut short. He only played seven years in the league. But he's in the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. 
Um, he was a five-time pro bowler, a three-time all-pro. Uh, he led the league in receiving three years. He led the NFL in touchdowns receiving two years. Um, he scored 65 touchdowns, you know, in seven seasons. So, I mean, it would probably it would probably almost be a runaway for Sterling Sharp if he hadn't had his career cut short by injury. I mean, there there could be another I'm forgetting about, maybe reach back into the older days. But man, Sterling, he he might be one that you really got to consider. Now, Javon, his upside, you know, is going to be there, and I don't know if he'll ever. Even though defensive tackle is a very important position, and there are certain defensive tackles that become sort of transcendent. Um, I don't know. Think of like Warren Sapp, for instance. You know how how he was when he played, and you think about some of the greatest tackles of all time. You still, you know, you'd always go to him, and, and there are several others. But I think sometimes that, you know, if you're talking about a quarterback, for example, you're talking about a receiver or running back. Those are a little bit more easy maybe to say, okay, well, this guy put up this stat, and, and he's maybe more of a well-known, or he's the greatest. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I think maybe there there could be some inherent bias in that, but Sterling would probably be a pretty decent pick. I don't know if he's the guy. You know, we'd need to go do some research, but just on the eye test and what he did, he may be one that yeah. you got a sort of a circle. And, and, and kind of like I don't want to say like small sample size because he played what like eight years in the league, seven years, nine years, something like that. But and just in terms of the counting stats, not necessarily going to be there. But it's it's going to be like the peak versus longevity argument, and you have. Jonathan Abraham on one side of it and Sterling Sharp on the other. I, I just think, uh, again, yeah. I, I kind of go back to the way football's played right now and how valuable interior pass rush is. Like, you talk to people around the NFL, and I, I, it's maybe not consensus, but if you say Aaron Donald is the best player in the NFL at any position and has been for the last three years, you're going to get a lot of people that agree with you. And the people that push back, yeah, you know, they're probably not going to think you're crazy for saying that. And do I expect Javon Kinlaw to become Aaron Donald? No. But does he have that upside? Does he have that ability? Just naturally, the freak athleticism, the speed, the power, everything. Yeah, and like that's—I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm driving the hype train right now. But I am just so excited to watch him play at the next level. I, I'm as excited to watch Javon Kinlaw in the NFL as any Gamecock that I can remember recently. Guys, listen to this: Sterling Sharp, uh, career history, 1988 to 1994, but. In that time span, five Pro Bowls, three-time first-team All-Pro, three-time NFL reception leader, two-time NFL receiving touchdowns leader, and one-time NFL receiving yards leader, and he's in the Packers Hall of Fame. And he was Brett Favre's uh, favorite receiver, right? I would he assume. Was one of, <laughs> he was one of. Yeah, Favre has said that um, three of the best receivers he's ever uh, played with or from South Carolina, and he, he's listed Robert Brooks, Sidney Rice, and Sterling Sharp. He, he's mentioned that before. Yeah, I, I actually looked up Robert Brooks's numbers because I, I remember as a kid thinking he was an absolute stud, which which he was, but his, his numbers just uh, don't come close to what Sharp was able to do. Even, even in that shortened time frame, I mean, to be three-time first-team All-Pro and to lead the league in receptions three times is freaking insane. Mm, yeah, pretty good. Well, uh, anyway, I, I think I think Javon Kinlaw is going to be good. How about that? <laughs> that works. All right, cool. Um, so that, yeah, that was the first Gamecock who heard his name called uh, 
And the uh, next Gamecock that had his name called, Brian Edwards, um, who would have been called a little bit earlier had it not been maybe the best wide receiver class or the deepest wide receiver class ever in the history of the NFL, but still found himself uh, having his name called in the third round. Going to one of the more exciting teams, maybe. I mean, moving cities and just based on the draft that they had, uh, adding a lot of weapons there, obviously taking Henry Ruggs with their uh, first-round pick, did the Las Vegas Raiders. And Brian Edwards going to join him. Uh, another really good landing spot for a Gamecock, I think, Wes. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm not quite as sold on the Raiders as an organization as I maybe am, you know, the 49ers. Um, all things considered, but but yeah, I think you know you look at what Gruden's trying to do there. Obviously, um, you know they're they're trying to stockpile wide receivers and and beef up that offense, and he he comes in. Uh, you know, with, with two other wide receivers who are really good. And I, I think it, it's kind of a situation where Brian goes in and he's not going to be asked to, to step right in and, and be a number one receiver or have a, a lot of the weight on his shoulders like he obviously did for South Carolina this past year. And, um, you know, as long as they can protect the quarterback and give him the ball, I mean, I think he's going to go make plays. This, this is a kid that, you know, we, we've seen him, I think, grow up um, on the field and, and play a little bit more consistent. He's He's always been able to make the highlight reel catches. I think the thing with him is just always going to be about to, you know, not lose his focus and show consistent hands and, and go make some plays. But, um, yeah, I think this is a guy, as you said, if, if not for the depth of this draft. And, um, you know, I, I think some of the injury history stuff, considering that doctors weren't allowed to, you know, to actually – meet and uh and see him he he obviously had a, another injury while he was training for the you know for the draft uh combine stuff and wasn't able to run around at the combine and the pro days get canceled so I, I think um he's probably on that list of guys that were affected by um you know the coronavirus but um at the end of the day i, I think at least he goes in the third round there was some talk leading into the draft everything i was reading said there was a chance he dropped all the way to the fourth round so mm. Uh, I was glad to see him go ahead and uh, go off the board in the third. And Chris, there—I mean, there was never any doubt from basically the first day he set foot on campus. You always knew that he—that he at least could be an NFL receiver. It was just a matter of him, you know, putting it all together, which he did. And you give him a lot of credit for that. You know, very consistent, caught a ball in every game in his career, career leader, and basically everything except for touchdowns at South Carolina. And he—he he always looked the part from day one. So uh, not a surprise, but it's. I don't know. It's it's just nice to see because after after three years, I remember saying to my roommates, "It's like wow, Brian Edwards is going to have all the receiving records at South Carolina, and it's probably going to end up feeling like a slightly underwhelming career for a record holder." And then he really showed out his senior year, showed a lot of explosiveness, some spectacular catches along the way, of course. And even though the season as a whole was disappointing for South Carolina, you know, a, a, a fitting in, an appropriate in, and kind of I think what we always wanted to see from a guy that always felt like an NFL receiver to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's. I think I agree with Wes that it was good that he did get scooped up in the third round. I mean, um, it, I, I heard on the the night of the first round of the draft, I got a text from somebody sort of tied into the scouting community that said, "Hey, look, he, he's he's probably going between fifty and ninety. So fifty would have put him, you know, mid second round, and then ninety. You know, I think he ended up going eighty one, if I'm not mistaken." So that that range was pretty much dead on, and I think when, when you get there, there were a lot of receivers that came on the board. I mean, 
you mentioned how deep the draft class was, Pearson, and without that deep of a class, he probably do, does go second round. And, you know, he had he had a few nagging injuries at Carolina. He also had the fact that it was a stacked receiver class. He also had the, the off-season injury when he was training, and, and things came back positive on that front, which is great for Brian. Then he had a big body of work, and a great, from a character standpoint, is phenomenal. And so no questions about that type of stuff in terms of his competitiveness and the type of kid that he is. We saw that every single year of his four years at South Carolina from start to finish. So he had all that going for him. He was just faced with a a deep draft class. So I think this is still a really good spot for him, all things considered. I think Edwards, even though he was pick 81, I went and counted. I think he had 14 or 15 receivers went before him. So that shows you how deep it was. Um, and, and so, yeah, like I said, I think I think it's a nice slot for him. He, I think the highest he would have gone was sometime probably mid-second round. But, again, it's it's understandable when you have that many really good receivers on the board, some of which put up huge testing numbers. You know, you think of the kid from Baylor who is a big kid who could really run. You know, people tend to get enamored with stuff like that. And it really comes down to team preference and need in some situations. Some of these guys are really close, and it's just – which team likes which guy. Right. And I guess for the Raiders, I should say, as as exciting as their draft was, you know, getting a bunch of skill position guys and it's like, wow, this is gonna be awesome. And and it was fun, again, on paper. But you also have Derek Carr throwing the football to him or uh I'm trying to remember who's I guess they got Marcus Mariota now. I guess neither of those really inspires yep. a lot of confidence. I, I don't even know how many balls are are going to get thrown the way of those receivers, you know, without getting intercepted or batted down on the line or things like that. So I'm not saying I'm excited for the Raiders, but it was just a, it's kind of a an interesting direction that they went. I mean, I think a pretty good draft, but uh, of course you got to got to get the quarterback question figured out before anything else. Uh, next game cock off the board was DJ Wanham. One round later in the fourth round, went to the Minnesota Vikings, another team that's really competitive, a, a good landing spot for DJ. I think he's going to come in. He's going to. He's going to be allowed to be eased into the system. They're not going to have to rely on him right away, you know, 15, 20 snaps maybe um, if he's ready for that. But a good landing spot on a team that has been one of the more competitive teams towards the top of the NFC the last couple of years. And, uh, I mean, Chris, DJ feels like a guy that, that could maybe end up having a better NFL career than his college career if he could just stay healthy because that was such a such a question mark the entire time he was at Carolina, and Will Muschamp has always been so high on his upside. You wonder if Minnesota is where he finally maximizes that. Yeah, I mean, he did have a, you know, a couple injury issues at South Carolina later in his career. But another kid who, again, DJ is not a guy that you have to worry about. There's no, there are no red flags whatsoever. You know, he's probably more athletic than he gets credit for. Um, you, you didn't get the feel that this was going to be, you know, a top two round selection or anything just because he, he didn't get that sort of he doesn't have that sort of freak athletic ability that a guy like Kinlaw has but what he is is he's just been a really steady producer he's really technically sound you're right Will Muschamp said hey he's going to play in the NFL for a long time and I, I can see him doing that I, I wouldn't be surprised you know it's hard to tell on certain guys but I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now DJ Wanham's still on a roster still I don't think he's going to be a star Mm-hmm. But he's probably got starter potential, and he can certainly hang around on a roster because he's really, you know, conscientious. He's always had that pro sort of mentality. He knows exactly what to do. You know what you're going to get out of him. It's going to be great effort. It's going to be versatility. It's going to be 
being really technically sound. He's just a really sharp dude. And so I, I think he could he has a he's gonna have a chance, I think, to hang around for a long time. And I think that was a really good slot for him too, because I sort of wondered, you know, I I wasn't I didn't have a great feel for Wanham as far as, you know, can he go as high as fourth round? Will it be fifth? Will it be sixth? So I'm really happy for him and that family that he was able to get to a nice situation in a in a really good draft slot for him. Yeah, and there's a, there's another Gamecock that we're going to talk about here in just a minute that signed as an undrafted free agent that feels like he'll just be around the game for a while because he's a good guy to have in the locker room, high work ethic guy, um, you know, high character guy, just a, a lot of those things that, you know, make it easy for you to have a successful pro career. But, Wes, if I put it to you like this, basically, uh, I mean, he's not going to be John Abraham, I don't think, and John Abraham played for, like, 70 years, I think, which is part of how he accumulated so many sacks. But would you be more surprised if DJ Wanham's I, out of the league in two years because of injury issues or plays for 12 years? 12 years, good grief. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I said um, on another show I was doing, I was like, mark this, DJ Wanham is going to be that guy that eight years from now um, is still just rolling along in the league. And uh, he may he may not be a superstar, um, I think he'll be a solid contributor, but he's going to be one of those guys that coaches love to coach, that is in the right spot at every every time. You never have to worry about him off the field. You never have to worry about him on the field. He's going to push the guys around him. First guy in the door, last guy to leave. I think he he is a professional football player. He cares. And to me, that um, are going to translate very, very well because there's no – being a professional football player and all that goes into that um, on a daily basis is, uh, you know, he'll, he'll position perfectly into that because that's what he does anyway. So I, I think he's a guy that um, if he can stay healthy, obviously, then, um, you know, we'll be doing a podcast eight years from now. And we'll be talking about how DJ Wanham still in the league. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like it. Yeah, that'll just be around. You know, Devin Taylor, someone that has just been in the league for a while now. And, and like, honestly, I couldn't even tell you if he is still anymore and if he is what team he's on. But he's someone that just no, kind he, of, like, he always. Was in, uh, he was in the XFL this past year. He was? Okay. Well, yeah. he, I mean, he was on Detroit yeah. for a while just as, like, kind of a regular contributor. And sometimes he was starting. Sometimes he, you know, wasn't but was just kind of uh, around for a while. I don't know. I, I feel like DJ maybe has even a little more upside than that, although Devin Taylor was really long and really athletic and did a lot of interesting things. But, um. Uh, yeah, I, like y'all said earlier with Kenlaw specifically, like landing, like where you land has a lot to do with it. And a, a place like Minnesota that's been a you know a really good franchise the last couple of years is is a, a good place to start your career for DJ. Last Gamecock taken, at least in the draft. Uh, again, a bunch of guys signing undrafted free agent deals. Uh, but TJ Brunson, maybe a, a little bit of a surprise here. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily expected him to get drafted. I think he, I, I think if you had said, Four Gamecocks get drafted and five of them sign undrafted free agent deals. I would have thought probably Donnell Stanley, maybe someone took a seventh-round flyer on and T.J. Brunson signed an uh, undrafted free agent deal. Seemed like he was going to land somewhere. When you get to the sixth and seventh round, I guess, you know, it's kind of six and one half dozen. Are you just signing him after the draft? Are you taking a flyer on him late? Uh, but T.J. Brunson, a guy that was, you know, pretty consistent in South Carolina, had all the counting stats. I, I think maybe the question for him is is just, you know, kind of where exactly does he fit in an NFL defense, not like your prototypical NFL-looking kind of linebacker. Uh, so, Wes, level of surprise, and uh, what do you think about TJ uh, landing on the Giants? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just happy for him, man. I, I didn't know, frankly, if he was going to make the cut. There uh, there were a number of guys that sort of were, were on that final line. I, I think I personally thought that Rico Daddle maybe had a better chance of being the last game got picked. And you look, um, you know, the fact that TJ wasn't invited to the combine, um, you know, made, made me think he probably didn't have a great shot of getting drafted. But, but I'm happy for him, man. I, I think uh, – He's a tough-nosed kid. He's another one that is a is professional mindset. Um, you know, is not going to be a problem off the field. All, all those things that you're looking for. You know, and, and to me, if you're going if you're going to make a team and, and sort of stay on a team, and you're a late round pick, you, you got to go bust your tail on special teams and show that you can help there. I think that's something TJ can certainly do. You know, I, I think the big question for him would just be how how will they use him within the scheme? How um, you know, I, I don't know obviously much of anything about their defensive scheme, but I, I think if you put TJ in the in the box and, and let him stop the run and, and do those things, then he's going to be really good at it. I think what we saw was his biggest question mark will be: can he get out if you're going to be playing? Obviously, the it's a spread league now, so are, are you going to be asking him to get out and, and have to cover guys and play some man-to-man coverage on running backs and, and stuff like that? That's the that was never really his strong suit. So I, mm-hmm. I think for TJ, um, it's just going to be about how they plan to use him and, and can he find sort of a, a niche where he can, um, you know, use his, his positive skill set to his advantage and, and maybe mask uh, the deficiencies. And, Chris, you can go two ways on this. You can say, well, he landed at the Giants. It's a terrible organization right now, so not a great place to – land if you want to develop a winning mentality but you can also say hey you know if if the Giants took a flyer on him maybe he's going to have a chance to contribute right away and that can help the early development of his career which way do you go with that yeah I mean when you when you talk about a seventh round pick Pearson it's almost and not to not to put any type of negative slant on it but it's difficult you know um, because there's not a ton of difference between seventh round picks or undrafted free agents I mean there's a guy taken, I can't recall who it was, but um, he had a lot of teams. He was undrafted after the weekend, and he ended up getting a, a better contract in terms of the money than you see for guys slotted in the seventh round, maybe even the sixth. I can't, I can't recall exactly. But, you know, you talk about with undrafted situations, sometimes you have some different guys vying for you, and you're able to almost take your pick and negotiate a little bit. And so, um, you know, seventh rounder is a, is a little bit tougher. Um, when you're talking about those things. But, you know, TJ's another guy that, I mean, Muschamp's always raved about him. You know, we're, we're glad he's our Mike linebacker, and, and, you know, we're glad we have him. And certainly he did some good things. He he is going to be – he's probably not going to be in West Hit on this. may not be a three-down linebacker in the league, but can he help you on special teams? Can he can he go give you some snaps at linebacker? He could – from a from an athletic skill set, set standpoint, he can probably do that, you know. When you're talking about a later round draft pick, teams aren't as invested financially as they are in a first or second rounder, whatever it may be. Um, so it is tougher to hang around, but he'll have a chance. And I thought it was really neat for him that he was able to hear his name called despite, you know, not being able to have a pro day, not being able to be invited to the combine, being snubbed from that. That was a good deal for him. All right, we're going to go lightning round on the undrafted free agents, so uh, I'll just let each of you talk about – well, we'll just alternate. I'll start with you, Wes, um, and let's start with uh, let's start with Donnell Stanley. I, I mentioned him. What, what are your takes on, uh, on Donnell Stanley as a pro, and were you surprised that he didn't get drafted? 
I wasn't surprised, but I figured he'd he'd be picked up pretty quickly, which he he obviously was. Um, you know, I I think. Man, it's just hard to say with these guys, uh, not being really an NFL expert or anything like that. But, um, you know, we'll see. I, I think Donnell, they'll get another kid that handles himself the right way. I think that's a common trend among all these guys that are Carolina draft picks. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't know anything about the Dolphins um, line. I do know one of my buddies that is a big Dolphins fan and is tied in and follows everything they do, thinks that he's got a chance to, to make that team. But, you know, we'll, we'll certainly see. Uh, let's stay in Florida, Chris, and talk about Tavian Feaster signing with the Jags. I was surprised that Tavian didn't get more traction going into the draft. You know, um, he didn't have a huge statistical body of work because last year he had his own injury towards the last of the year he split carries with Rico Dowdle but he had a huge game against Florida you know he played at Clemson again he was behind some guys for most of his career but he certainly showed some flashes he still has track speed you know and he's a bigger back and a tougher runner than he gets credit for so um, honestly I, I was a little bit surprised I'll be honest that going into the draft that Rico Dowdle's stock seemed a little bit higher mm. in terms of getting a combine invite in terms of say it I wasn't surprised that people said that Dowdle could get drafted because based on talent he could I, I thought there were too many injury concerns for teams to invest a draft pick in him but when you just look comparatively at the two I thought that Feaster may have had just as good of a chance to get drafted as Dowdle because of that upside and the speed and all those things um, but I, I'm not surprised at all that he got picked up um, I think he'll have a chance to be able to stick because he does have speed. He can probably help you on special teams. That's something – when you think of NFL roster spots, when you're a sixth, seventh-round pick, an undrafted free agent, a guy that's scrapping to make a roster, a huge question is going to be can you play special teams? Because if you can, that's going to help you have a chance to hang around. And so for a guy like Brunson, Feast, or any of these guys that are position players and aren't you know, you know, kickers, punters, or quarterbacks – your ability to go out there and gun and play on special teams and block guys or cover guys, cover kicks, that's going to be a significant part for you. Wes, his running mate Rico Dowdle signed an undrafted free agent contract with the Dallas Cowboys. Interesting spot for Rico. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, with, with a lot of these guys, it's just about, you know, can they can they stay healthy at the next level? I, I think Rico has, a, you know, I, I remember when South Carolina signed Rico and he was a running back in high school, put up huge numbers. Um, and, and, you know, even as a freshman, uh, just coming in, rushing for, I think, 700 yards or something, just without going through most of preseason camp and all that, I said, man, this guy is going to be a really, really good running back for South Carolina. And because of injuries and some other things, it just never quite clicked in. But, um, you know, did, does he have the potential to be one of those guys that, maybe ends up having a, a more complete professional career than he did a college career. I, I think um, I'm not predicting it, but I, I do think it's possible. Another senior, Kobe Smith. Uh, I was really excited. I, I didn't really see him on the radar. I was honestly, I, I don't want to say, again, it sounds bad when I say surprised to to hear that he signed an undrafted free agent deal, but he was just not someone that I heard any buzz about coming out of South Carolina. But Kobe Smith, a guy that just kind of, 
did all the dirty work, just did everything right. And Will Muschamp has all you know spoken very highly of him as another guy that I guess kind of like DJ Wanham. He's just you don't have to worry about him. He's in the right place. He does all the right things. You know, played a little tackle for South Carolina. Played outside when they needed him to. But he has signed an undrafted free agent deal with the Titans. Chris. Yeah, Kobe was a steady performer. This this is someone who's really been a pretty important player for South Carolina because when you look back at that first year of Will Muschamp, you know, we talk a lot about how they're playing guys on the line that maybe weren't ready, you know, and one of them was Kier Thomas, who was in there playing against Georgia as a very, very undersized defensive tackle. But Kobe Smith, you know, was in that first class as well. And he was he was a nice get for South Carolina, former Kentucky commitment. Um, former NC State commitment, too. And they they were able to nab him, you know, late in that class with some connections that they had. And he played all four years. I mean, he played an important role from a depth standpoint on that team his first year. And I think he continued to get better and better during his career. It, he probably would have been really well suited if he could have redshirted. But, again, that <laughs> that option wasn't really there in year one for Smith or a lot of guys. And so um, he's he's someone who can get in there and play – you know, close to the ball for you as an interior defensive lineman, a really strong kid. He's not going to be super explosively athletic, um, but but can do some things for you. And I think he'll get a strong look in camp and, and just go from there. But he was he was really solid at South Carolina, and I'm glad he got an opportunity as well. Wes, I think all three of us were surprised when Kyle Markway declared his attention, his intentions to go pro. Not surprised that he didn't get drafted. Not even really surprised that he signed an undrafted free agent deal, but he's going to be teammates with T.J. Brunson in New York. Yeah, and I think with, with Mark Way, the sense I got was that, you know, this is someone who's dealt with a lot of injuries in his career, someone that, um, yes, he had a sixth year of eligibility, but there there comes a point where um, – you know, you just say, look, if I if I am going to ever have a shot to be an NFL player, I'm, I'm ready to sort of take that shot and, and just see what happens. And I think he, you know, had a, a pretty solid year as far as being able to stay healthy and being able to um, finish out his career and sort of go out on his own terms. And, and now, I, I mean, can he make the team? Can he make an impact? I, I don't know, but I, I think he was just at that point well, you know, where sometimes it's just time to move on and um, another year, you know, you're a year older. Was his draft stock going to skyrocket with another season of film? Probably not. So I, I think it was one of those things where he was just probably as, uh, you know, as good as he was going to be as a player in development. So um, let's go check it out and, and see what can happen. Chris, I expect Joseph Charlton to sign somewhere at some point because he was one of the best punters in the country, maybe the best punter in the country. He will probably end up being on a team. Any other Gamecocks that are on your radar that you think might get a shot with an NFL team uh, before the season officially gets underway? Mm, you know, Charlton would really be the main one that stands out. Mm-hmm. Nobody uh, else off the top of my head that I could that I could think of there. I mean, there were some other guys that that played roles that were you know that came out for South Carolina, but Charlton would be the main one just from a. I still haven't gotten a great answer. I'm hoping to get one today sometime after this podcast that we'll be able to maybe give our subscribers some insight on Gamecock Central as to why he hasn't gotten picked up, why he wasn't picked up around draft day Mm -hmm. as a free agent. But uh, sort of head-scratching right now. Yeah, I I think so too. But y'all stay uh, stay tuned to GamecockCentral.com for uh, hopefully that update coming from Chris. And Chris has another update 
a bigger picture college football update that we'll get to in a, in just a second. But as we close out our talk about the draft, nine guys that are at least going to get a shot to make an NFL team, uh, maybe ten if Charlton does end up getting a deal, which again I expect him to at some point. Four Gamecocks having their name called kind of makes it feel even worse, Wes, that Carolina went four and eight last year because uh, I went and I I, I did. Uh, not not the research exactly because it, it wasn't strenuous enough for me to call it research. But I looked at all the Power Five teams that were four and eight or worse, and South Carolina was the only team that had four guys drafted. Everybody else was three, two, one, or zero. Uh, makes it sting a little bit the four and eight a little more. Yeah, what? Well, but I think the other takeaway for me was watching the draft and just watching how many other SEC programs. You know, obviously the ones that you're you're battling with week in, week out, and battling with on the recruiting trail, um, had draft picks and had so many draft picks. I mean, once again, Alabama dominating, LSU dominating. Um, you know, a, a situation where you, if you're South Carolina, it's, it's a good step. It, it's a good sign that you're getting some of the right guys, um, you know, that you had four drafted, but I think is also – in comparison, a sign that you got to keep getting these guys, and you got to hope to to get even more of them. If that makes sense, if you have four guys drafted, I, I think you need to have seven guys drafted, eight guys drafted, and um, and and where they're drafted, I, I think matters as well. I, I mean, it, it it felt like the you know the first round was just SEC after SEC after SEC, and I, I think it it never ends. You know, you're always on to the next crop of guys. So I, for me. Yes, it was a sign that South Carolina had some some talent, which which we knew. We knew um, for the most part these guys are going to be drafted, but also it was a sign of how 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 much ground there still is to to make up if you want to get to that upper level of SEC play. I think fourteen guys from LSU drafted, and obviously Carolina didn't have to play LSU. Last year in grade, they're getting to play, getting to play them next year. But uh, but that's the bar in the SEC. If you want to win a national championship, if you want to win the SEC, got to have 14 guys from one team. The most amazing part about that is that it wasn't even the record. I guess it tied the record, but it wasn't the most. It was that 2003 or four Ohio State team maybe that uh, had 14 guys taken, which is uh, that's uh, that's just stupid. Uh, but anyway, that about does it for uh, for the NFL draft. We'll hey do it again next year, guys. Uh, Chris, you have an update for us. When is college football going to be played? <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah. No, nope, you got to go to Gamecock Central and find out. I have the exact answer for mm-hmm. you. Um, no, no, but we did. You know, Pearson, we were able to gather a little bit of information with you know the caveat, and I don't want to bury the lead or mislead anybody with it. Is we still don't know exactly when it's going to return. We still got quite some time before the season's set to begin. They they have what they're doing right now across college football with the power brokers is they're working different scenarios because right now you can't say with any level of confidence this is what we're going to do. We are going to start on time. We are going to have fans and we are going to open up practice at this time. You can't do that. And the reasons are pretty obvious. So you need to spend time on that. But what they do need to have in place is some plans, some preparations that um, once once there is some type of feel, whenever that is, you know, keep in mind that the SEC, for example, is still shut down as far as in-person activities and in-person recruiting until May 31st. So that's probably a nice target date to at least, you know, say, hey, maybe they put something into place then or maybe not. 
you know, maybe at the beginning of May when some states are looking at reopening, et cetera, that they may be able to put some better ideas into place. And, you know, you got to account for the fact that schools across the country, campuses are still closed and some of them aren't sure if they're going to reopen. And so that just creates a whole, a whole big mess of problems when you're trying to get the season. in. so we don't know in what form or fashion, but what they are doing across college football is they are working these different scenarios. And so conferences, from my understanding, are submitting, hey, here's what our plan may look like. Here's some ideas we have. There's sort of a COVID-19 advisory panel. I think they're calling it the Playing and Practice Seasons Working Group to figure out, because it's not just about, okay, we're going to have the season. You know, they need time to prepare. Well, Muschamp's gone on record saying he thinks that the teams need eight weeks. I don't know if they're going to get that. Brett McMurphy from Stadium put out a piece, I think it was yesterday, talking about how, you know, there's a there's a there's some talk about a six-week period, you know, whether or not it's mandatory or, or whatever it may be to reopen. But I had a couple folks tell me that, you know, people have submitted everything from eight-week to four-week plans in terms of this is how we'd structure it to reopen. And an example of the six-week plan would be something like you got two weeks of like an NFL-style OTAs, so almost like a very limited type of practice, and that would, in theory, replace spring practice. Then, uh, or before that, maybe even you would have two weeks of you know strength and conditioning with the team, then your two weeks of OTAs, and then two weeks of actual football camp that would sort of replace your your preseason camp, and all that would lead into the season. So it's sort of crammed in there under that scenario, but it is what it is. I mean, it's already going to be different, and uh, we'll just have to see how it works out. They're just working all those different scenarios right now. So here's one of the in the, the scenarios that's been most intriguing to me. I, I think the there is consensus. I feel like I've used that word a lot on this podcast. I apologize. There is a, a mutual feeling between a lot of schools that are, are rather in agreement that college athletics cannot resume unless people are back on college campuses. Now, the reality of the country we live in is that it's ginormous and that the rates of coronavirus curve flattening, you know, second bump, second spikes, all these things that are going to happen over the course of the next couple months is going to be dramatically different from state to state. And it's not unreasonable to think that here at South Carolina, things could be back to normal by June or July and maybe students start coming back for summer too. And then the South Carolina football players are allowed to come back on campus and would theoretically be able to start practicing or, you know, the sort of college OTAs or, you know, strength and conditioning or whatever it ends up being. But if it's not the case, if it's not okay in Baton Rouge and LSU can't come back to campus and, you know, maybe LSU has to cancel their fall semester next year, but all the other SEC schools are fine, you know, just based on the spread of coronavirus in their respective college towns. Has there been a contingency plan discussed to to have – like a, like a, a half season or half of the SEC participate or some teams? Is it going to be a team-by-team basis, or is this all or nothing within conferences or within all of college football? Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that based on what I've heard. I, I mentioned Brett McMurphy earlier, and, you know, he actually put out a, another separate piece, I think it was yesterday, maybe even today, that, you know, he talked to a bunch of ADs about it, and, basically posed that same question you're asking Pearson and the athletic director said, you know, that's the billion dollar question, you know, and basically the question is what does a conference do, you know, if all 
of its member schools aren't actually returning, you know, their entire student body to campus in the fall. And the the responses were predictably, you know, different <laughs> from everywhere. You know, um, they're they're trying to figure out where each school is, you know, where their heads are at, so to speak. And, you know, one, one of the ADs in the group of five told Brett McMurphy that he said, we can't afford for a few boats to sink the fleet. You know, they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, how can we, you know, the ones that can get back, trying to get them to come back, you know, and I, and I don't know what it would look like. I mean, if let's say you got a conference and eight of the school, you know, is everybody going to be in lockstep eventually? I don't know, but let's say they're not, and you know, seven schools in a conference, they have returning students and seven are not, you know, that there might be a push of, Hey, we got to play on. And so then you figure it out from there. I mean, do you only allow football players back? Do you, I have no idea. So, you know, in terms of, and that's a different question from just shortening the schedule. I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios. There's still, you know, talk percolating about, you know, starting on time, starting later, the, the worst case scenario in terms of date would be starting next year. I, I don't know if that seems likely that that's like a last resort type of thing. I think there's a big push to try to start on time, whether or not that's feasible. Again, we don't know. But I think the question you pose is a very valid one. It's just right now people are – that's another component of, of many components that people are trying to deal with. And the short answer is we just don't know. I, I think people are just trying to consolidate and gather information on how can we attack this problem. If college football does just start later, it was – Gosh, somebody from the SEC, and I can't remember who now, said that there are there are scenarios that have been discussed where they could start the season as late as October one. Um, does it seem more likely that a that a season starting later in the fall would just run more into the start of twenty twenty one, or would be a shortened season? Well, let me give my stock answer for anything related to this. It depends. <laughs> um, you could do either. Um, one thing that's been on the table is depending on how late you have to start, you know, uh, maybe in that situation, the problem you've got to back up is if you go too far in the next year, you know, you could in theory affect, start affecting spring practice and the off season, the NCAA and college coaches may say, "Uh -uh -uh, we need time for our players to recover or let's, let's look at academics. Let's look at the off season because, I mean, heck, South Carolina started spring ball in late February this year. So you got to consider that. So if the season, in theory, got pushed back to, you know, some certain date that's out in the ether that we don't really know, you know, you could be looking at a deal where you're shortening the conference season or shortening the entire season. Maybe you play conference only. Maybe you play, I don't know, 10 total games. You know, maybe you play your conference in a couple other games. Um, there's just a lot of moving parts to it. So push, yeah, pushing it into next year is an option. Um, whether or not they'd shorten the season, I think it just depends. I think the 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 thinking behind doing all this is to try to have a lot of different plans to unleash. You know, whenever the appropriate time comes, and they may have to adjust, and that's why you're seeing so many different ones right now. So many different like iterations. I still don't – I haven't had anyone tell me, like, for sure when it's going to start. It depends on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. I've talked to some people in college football that are very convinced that the season's going to start on time. Mm. I've talked to others who aren't sure, 
and, and they've said it could it could start on time with or without fans. It could be later with or without fans, or it could be next spring. And that nobody wants to do next spring for a ton of reasons. But if if it's the choice between that and no football, what do you think is going to happen? Mm. You know. But I think there's a big push to to do it sometime this year, and I do think that's feasible. Um, but but that's why they're working so hard to try to figure out how could we do it. Wes, just uh, as a someone that's a fan of college football, and obviously you know we all do this for work, so a little bit of a different relationship with it. Would you rather see a season that starts later and that runs into early 2021? interferes with the NFL and a bunch of other things, and then, like Chris is pointing out, maybe even messes up the calendar for 2022 or just going forward, or would you rather see sort of an experimental 2020 season where it's a shortened schedule and maybe you're just playing conference opponents? Um, honestly, at this point, either one works for me. Like, I'm fine with either just because I'll take anything, but um, – I'd actually probably rather have the one that extends out and just let's let's play the full thing. If if that's an option that you're giving me, I mean, uh, you know, you have to cut maybe cut out some spring practice or something. You have to make some other adjustments. Then uh, yeah, you'll you'll make do. I think. But I'd I'd love if if it meant that there could be a full season. It meant that we could have it a full you know playoff like normal and everybody plays their rivals like normal and all that stuff. Then I'd I'd be all for that. Chris, is there any part of you? Because I, I'm, I, I want to see. Like we don't have this opportunity, you know, and 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 like let's make the most of a of a bad thing. I want to see what it looks like for teams just to play their conference schedules. Am I am I wrong? Am I weird? Am I am I evil for like wishing that in the world? Or, or are you at least intrigued by the possibility of a shortened schedule leading to just conference only schedules? You, you want to see it? Just you would want to see that in a normal year. Well, like, not necessarily, like but like maybe. Happens. Like I, I, I don't know if I want to see it like permanently, but I'm intrigued by the possibility. So if, if they came to me and said, Pearson, you're deciding for the rest of college football, we're gonna we're gonna start October one, and the season's gonna run into February, or we're gonna start October one, and everyone's gonna play, you know, eight or nine games, and it's just teams that are in their conference. Which one do you choose? I'm like, let's do this. Like this gives us an opportunity to learn about another possible way to structure college football. Let's just see what it looks like. Yeah. I mean, I can see the intrigue. It creates a lot of storylines, you know, that there aren't uh, in most conferences or in some conferences, there aren't as many gimme games, you know. So for for teams that are in need of, hey, you got to get to this level. I mean, what do you do with bowls? There's so many questions that that creates. I'm intrigued by it. Yeah. Um, I, I like playing the full schedule, to be honest with you, because that means more football games, and I like more football games than less in general. <laughs> but, right, but you know, and the other question is, you know, what do you do with rivalries? You know, um, so, some of those are in, in conference, some aren't, like Clemson, South Carolina. So do you squeeze – do you play your conference schedule plus a rival? Is it conference only? Um, I, I – to, to actually answer your question, I mean, I, I'm in favor of playing an entire schedule just because I like more football games. Now, I think, personally, if you do push the season to October, I'm in favor of doing conference only or conference plus mm. rival rather than have it bleed way into next year. Yeah. I'd be fine with shortening it. Now, 
I, that's easy for me to say because I don't have to consider all these factors of revenue, et cetera. Because look, the the if you asked an administrator that, their answer is going to be, we want to play the whole season because we want every bit of TV revenue. We want every bit of gate revenue. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a huge, that's why we're having these discussions. You know, if it was only about health and safety and nothing else, and you didn't have to balance millions and millions of dollars, you know, the, the push on these things may not be as much, but you're talking about a situation that, I mean, it's not hyperbole or being dramatic could be absolutely, if there's no college football this season, um, it absolutely cripples a lot of athletic departments, mm-hmm. including really big ones. I mean, so we, we're already seeing the we're financial impact it. of not having March Madness for a lot of schools outside yeah. of the FBS that have you know basically applied for that waiver to say, hey, you know, can, can for just four years, can we only sponsor twelve varsity sports instead of sixteen because we can't afford it because we sure. all just lost millions and millions of dollars? And March Madness, I think, makes up the the biggest piece of revenue for the NCAA, but football is not far behind it, and that would that would I think honestly sink a lot of smaller athletic programs. Sure. And I mean, you look at South Carolina is way better positioned than uh, you might be able to say the majority of the teams in the country. Number one, South Carolina operates in the black from an athletic department standpoint. That's not something a lot of people do. It's, it's hard. And secondly, um, they get a huge amount of money from the SEC in terms of their revenue distribution. It was almost, I think it was almost 40, almost $46 million back in January um, for, for last year's distribution. And most of that is television money. So you're looking at if South Carolina played, you know, TV games only, they would still be a lot better positioned than a lot of other teams nationally because they would get probably high, you know, mid to high $30 million for that. And you say, well, that's pretty good. Yeah, but they, you know, if they play a full season plus get the TV money, then you're talking about in the $70 million range. So no season means $70, $80 million of lost revenue. Uh, TV only season is like half of that. So when you're talking about slashing like half of what you're expecting to bring in, that's huge, and so that does create issues. Even in a place like South Carolina, you're thinking about well, how can we slash costs? We may have to cut sports, uh, non-revenue sports. Then, then what do you do with Title IX? Then you have to start talking about maybe getting Title IX waivers. You have to band together as a conference institutions for that. So it's just a huge problem. And so all this is just do a lot of discussion about how can we play. And so they're going to play. I think we can. Right now, I think we can confidently say they're playing this thing at some point. We still just don't know when. It's just how are you going to bring it back and when and in what fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so many permutations, and as you mentioned, right now it's just let's come up with every single possible plan so that whatever yeah. is available to us, we can we can do that because it's more than people wanting their football. As you're pointing out, that you know the financial realities for a lot of these schools, for a lot of these athletic departments, is that they need to play football. So I appreciate you doing a lot, a lot of tough legwork on that and you know especially hard because like you said nobody really has any answers it's all just a lot of speculations and contingency plans at this point but uh, we'll continue to talk about this of course as we get more information as this continues to evolve and I mean I mean look we're we're almost into May you know we're we're towards the end of what would be the school year and then into the summer and then football 
or what would be the start of football and fall sports is right around the corner. So things are going to have to start together, start to come together uh, sooner rather than later. But uh, again, thank you so much for that, Chris. And y'all stay tuned to GamecockCentral.com. Chris will have updates there. Um, and of course, plenty here on this podcast and everything else on the Gamecock Central Podcast Network still rolling. Will Helms and I are going to have a recap of the draft, uh, a little more in-depth and a little more general than what uh, Wes and Chris and I did here today. New episode of The Hard Foul posted yesterday as A.J. Lawson has made his intentions known in terms of the 2020 NBA draft, whether that's in May, whether that's in August, still remains to be seen, or I guess June or August, whenever the NBA draft normally is. But plenty of good content to be found on GamecockCentral.com and the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. As always, thank you all so much for listening. And for Wes and Chris, I'm Pearson. We'll talk to you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.